Have your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Psalm 33. One verse out of Psalm 33. Psalm 33 at verse 12. This is always a dangerous thing to do, only to read one verse, but I think you'll understand why I do so. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Can I read it again? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The national debt, suicide among teens, the skyrocketing divorce rate, the overall breakdown in the nuclear family, overcrowded prisons, Public education's declining performance by every conceivable criterion. Public public education is a mess. The backlog in the courts. Immigration. Illegal drugs. Unemployment. I'll I'll spare you all the stats because I think you know as well as I that you can make stats say just about anything you want them to say. I also hope you'll notice that I did not use, I did not list, or did not include in my list any of those hot-button Christian issues like abortion and homosexuality. I I, I think all of us would agree that this grand country of ours is has got some huge problems. Some of them, uh, people, or some people would say that they're insoluble, the problems. Others are not quite that pessimistic, but they are nonetheless very concerned. Um, But I I think we would at least agree on this much, that if if we could come up with a proper analysis, it would help. It would help us solve some of those problems that I listed, if we could simply come up with the right analysis. But agreeing on the analysis... Is a pipe dream. I mean, we certainly can't agree on the solutions, but we're not going to agree on the solutions until we agree on the analysis of the problems. And because we can't agree on the analysis, we certainly don't agree on the solutions. Uh, for example, there are those who tout that the answer to our problems is big government. And then there are others who cringe, horrified at the, at the idea of More government, big government. But the problem is, guys, that we analyze and see the problem differently. Or the problems, we see them differently. Because we do, our solutions differ widely. Now, guys, this morning, I want to offer you an analysis. Uh, It's just one among many. Uh, You'll 
you can decide whether it's right or whether it isn't. That's That will be your call. But what I'm trying to do is, this is my meager attempt at uh, helping or trying to help the people of God to help Christians think Christianly. Now, guys, um, I, I want to focus your attention this morning on two issues, two fundamental issues. They're, they're basic to all else, in my opinion. I'm sure there's some others. I'm sure that perhaps others would see it differently. But I want to focus your attention on a couple of fundamental issues. That list that I started with, those are all symptoms. You really can't address those. Uh, I mean, you can, but um, the, the, beneath it all, the bedrock stuff is is the two things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Just two things that I think are, are a part of the analysis, but are bedrock to everything else. Here's number one. A faulty view of human nature will lead to faulty solutions. Gang. If man is essentially good, like the humanists tell us he is, that the problem that leads to bad behavior is environmental, like the humanist says. By that they mean that what what, what really corrupts us is the acidic surroundings in which we are raised. If that's right, then the solutions are going to be things like um, government intervention. Um, education. Maybe we need to build a few more prisons. Maybe we could legalize marijuana. Or we could try hard, harder. You know, the yes, we can. Hitler had a, Adolf Hitler had a very unique spin on that issue. He thought that he would simply speed up the evolutionary process by eliminating the undesirable elements in the in the in the society and and he got rid of 6 million of what he thought was the the undesirables you know guys um you would think that after the events of the 20th century two world wars and and then um the the killing fields of cambodia the the khmer rouge and the fall of communism and then genocides and in uh, the Balkans and in Rwanda, you would think that all of that would cause people to change their view, but not a chance. They're still holding on to that 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 uh, that definition, that that perspective on human nature as being good, and so their solutions stem from that understanding of human nature. Now, the Bible has an altogether different slant on things. For instance, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? The Bible says, I am brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. It also says, um, very simply, with words that are easily explained or easily understood, it says, get this, there is there are none good, no, not one. Did you get that? <laughs> Pretty simple, there are, there's none good, no, not one. Guys, um, our problem, according to the Bible, is not that we sin every now and then. Our, our problem is, is that we're soaked in it. 
We're born into it. Sin, that is. And then add to that this dark thread of sin that that shoots through all of our internal worlds. Actually, it's Jesus who said, it's the internal world that's the problem. Remember in, in Mark 7, he said, out of the heart flows adulteries and murders and thefts and envies and all that business. The problem is the is the internal world. You don't think the Bible could be right, do you? You think? You know, years ago, I, I, I said 75, 80 years ago, I, I think it was in the 30s, 1930s. I think it was between the two world wars, World War One and World War Two. The London Times, the London Times is the newspaper in London. It still is. If you go to London, you can buy a London Times. Um, the, the London Times um, addressed its readership with a question. It, it had a big lead article uh, asking its readership this question. What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, a name that is familiar to some of you, G.K. Chesterton wrote back. He's a, he was a, um, a British novelist, poet, philosopher, statesman, really well thought of and well respected. G.K. Chesterton wrote back uh, in answer to the, the, the question posed by the newspaper. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back, I am. I'm the problem. And you, and you, and you, and you. The problem is not the environment. The problem is the inner world of each of us. So you see, guys... If man is good, you go in a certain direction with your, with your solutions. But if the Bible is right, you can't fix this. At least with more government and more prisons. And more education. It'll never be fixed that way. So you invest your tax dollars as much as you like. It's not going to address it. That is if the Bible's right. Now, that's a fundamental issue, ladies and gentlemen. Faulty views of man lead to faulty solutions. That's a, that's a part of my analysis. You got the wrong view of man? We're going to be continuing to add foolish decision to foolish decision. Here's the other thing that I want to draw your attention to, guys, in terms of a basic, at least what I think is a basic. A faulty view of morality makes immorality inevitable. If your view of morality is wrong, then immorality will be the necessary consequence for this very simple reason. 
if there, if there is not a God to give us morality, then who gets to define it? Who gets to give us morality? Uh, humanists have tried. And what they did, in essence, was take Christian ethics and turn it upside down. Everything that was positive in Christian became a negative, and everything that was negative became a positive in humanism. Ted Turner. You know him. He's the founder of CNN, married to Jane Fonda. I think they're divorced now. I don't know. But uh, uh, he said that the Ten Commandments were obsolete. And so he came up with ten voluntary initiatives. Here's another name, Joseph Altizer, a name that maybe you don't recognize as as well. Joseph Altizer. Um, Joseph Altizer wrote a book that has infected all of us, all of us. The title of the book, Situation Ethics. You got taught some of that, just like I did, didn't you? It's kind of bled over into our places. And um, and then there was Immanuel Kant. He uh, he suggested what he called the categorical imperatives. All as an effort, all in an effort to try and, in, in the absence of God, to provide a morality. Now tell me this. Here's my question for you. Do any of you, any of you obey any of that? Or do you know anyone who is obeying any of that? Guys, human reason cannot establish morals. You eliminate God from the picture, which is, which is certainly uh, the desire of the unbelieving world. You eliminate him from the picture, and human beings cannot establish morals, though it has been tried and, and failed miserably on numerous occasions. You've heard of Fyodor Dostoevsky, I, I think. He's a Russian novelist. He's quoted uh, on numerous occasions, but the one quote that is most people know by, by Dostoevsky is... This one, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. If God doesn't exist, everything's permissible. You wonder about the immorality in this land, ladies and gentlemen. Well, if God doesn't exist, everything's permissible. And there have been a couple of attempts that I, that I want to point out that have, that have sought to Cast God out of the picture. The first one has to do with relativism or the, the, the elimination of absolutes. Because if there's no absolutes, there's no God. And so the, 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 what's put in his place is called relativism. You've heard of that because it's an effort to try and, um, to, uh, to remove any objective standard outside of ourselves. And the way that we can do that is get rid of all absolutes and saying that that um, that, that that all of truth is relative. You know, th- this book was a national bestseller. It's it's 23 years old now. It came out in uh, 1987. Uh, the closing of the American mind. Did you, ever, did you read that, Alan Bloom? I did. Um, but this is his opening sentence. This is in the introduction. This is the opening sentence of the book. Um, he says this, uh, Bloom's a professor at, uh, the University of Chicago. And he says, uh, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Did you get that? 
There's one thing that any professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Virtually all of our high school students are taught, directly or indirectly, that there are no absolutes. Mark Twain once said that the problem with most people is not what they don't know, but what they know for certain, but it isn't true. You heard the little quip, I, I, I think, uh, about the school teacher who stood in front of his class and said, you can know nothing for certain. One student said, teacher, are you sure? The teacher said, I'm absolutely certain. Guys, if you were to ask the average high school graduate how he knows that there are no absolutes, he might say one of many things, but he might say, uh, well, my teacher told me that there are no absolutes. But the um, the more sophisticated ones will, will tell you something like this. They, they would say, where have you been, man, for the last 75 years? I mean, didn't you know that... Um, uh, have you never heard of the theory of relativity? Don't you know that we live in a relativistic universe and everything is relative? Albert Einstein proved that. No, he didn't, ladies and gentlemen. Albert Einstein said that relativity refers only to the realm of physics, but not ethics and morals. One historian by the name of Paul Johnson said, mistakenly, but perhaps inevitably, Relativity became confused with relativism. No one was more distressed than Einstein by this public misapprehension. He was bewildered by the relentless publicity and error which his work seemed to promote. Einstein was not a practicing Jew, but he acknowledged a God. He believed passionately in absolute standards of right and wrong. He lived to see moral relativism, to him a disease, become a social pandemic. So, ladies and gentlemen, how is it that Einstein's theory has been transported into every other major discipline? How did America end up with a relativism deduced from Einstein's theory of relativity, which has nothing whatsoever to do with morals or ethics? I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I, I can say this. It's never been difficult to get people to follow a path of immorality. So give them some kind of excuse. And they'll jump on it. One of the, the most interesting examples, which might be a little bit dated for this audience, but I think it's still a good example of how we cannot live with moral or cultural relativism. That is an example of why moral relativism will never work. An example is the Nuremberg trials after World War II. Now, some of you are too young to even remember that war. But it started in 1939. Uh, America entered in 1941 after Pearl Harbor. And it was over in 1945. But after that war, the, the leaders of the German war machine were put on trial because of what they call crimes against humanity. 
genocide, war crimes. And those trials were held in Nuremberg, Germany. And so they, the Nuremberg trials, they're, they're, they're very famous. But in those, in the course of those trials, the, the, um, the, the accused German leadership came up with a very unique defense for themselves. This is what they said. The Supreme Court in Germany has declared that Jews were non-persons. So, we have done nothing wrong. We acted according to our own culture, according to our own mores, according to our own laws. We were told that they could be killed. Who are you to come from another culture, another society, and impose your morals on us? Now, we're going to get back to that before it's all over. But, guys, the notion that one society cannot impose their morals uh, on another society, that's been around for 7,500 years. Um, what is suggested is that all morals are a societal cultural construct. That is, the culture constructed its own moral, its own mores. And so you can't impose one on the other. Now, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, the Allied attorneys were absolutely dumbfounded. How are we going to prosecute these guys if all culture, I mean, if all morals are culturally constructed? We have no right to impose our cultural norms, our cultural mores on these guys who killed six million Jews. How could you call the, the Nazi war machine wicked and killing all those people? When their Supreme Court had said, Jews are non-persons. You see, guys, absolutes are the things that said, that say that there's a certain morality that is true for all men in all places at all times. And if you eliminate those, the first consequence is that you've eliminated an objective standard outside of you known as God. The other thing that you have done is that you have introduced moral chaos. Look around you. But guys, there's another, there's another issue that has been equally successful in, in undercutting the whole idea of the existence of God. And that, of course, is uh, evolutionary science. Richard Dawkins, the most famous evolutionist today. Richard Dawkins says that evolution has made the world safe for atheists. He also says that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Now, guys, I'm, I'm not saying that all evolutionists are atheists. But I would like to ask you this, if you're an evolutionist. I would like to ask you this. Have you, have you considered the social and philosophical implications of your, of your position? Have you thought about where it's going to take you or where it takes you? Guys, I think most of you know that, that, that I'm a six day creationist, but my purpose today is not to try and expose the, the very poor evidence that is offered by evolution. I, in, in my opinion, evolution is way over believed. Um, but I know that some of you are still evolutionists. All I'm asking is this. Have you considered 
the philosophical, the social implications of your position. Have you? Have you considered where your position is going to take you? Well, let me just mention two things. First of all, if your beginning is in insignificance and your end is in oblivion, then everything in between is meaningless. And every thinking evolutionist knows that. There is no meaning in life. That's a quote, ladies and gentlemen, from Bertrand Russell. If I am only a biological accident that arose by chance chemical reactions of impersonal forces, I am of no more value than a baboon or a grain of sand. That too is a quote. From who? Oliver Wendell Holmes, the the famous chief justice of the Supreme Court of America. That you are of no more significance than a baboon or a grain of sand, ladies and gentlemen. If I am only the accidental collocation of atoms, then there is no meaning for me in life. And and I want to say to you, that is one of the issues that evolutionary science, I think, refuses to face. Stop all this talk about the dignity of man or social justice. Social justice? For what? Um, You are a very little more value than a baboon or a grain of sand. Because you're nothing more than than the result of time and chance and methane gas. But uh, secondly, just a a second implication of your system, not mine, yours. Um, That is, if you're an evolutionist. Tell me, when did morality get inserted into the evolutionary process? Or conscience? Or love, for that matter, or beauty? How did those things evolve into you? Guys, my, my purpose this morning is not to take a cheap shot at, at evolution, but to simply say this. Distinguishing, distinguishing between right and wrong is impossible without God. And evolution makes his existence questionable. And that's been done on purpose. I love to tell the story about um, Sir Julian Huxley. Sir Julian Huxley, I think, was the grandson. He could have been the great-grandson, but he was the grandson of Thomas Huxley. who Thomas Huxley was called Darwin's Bulldog. Well, his grandson, Sir Julian Huxley, um, I, I, gosh, at one time was the president of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He was the most prestigious evolutionary science in the world at the time. And he was interviewed when he was president of UNESCO. And he was asked, the, the question that he was asked is, why do you think that evolution caught on so quickly? Why do you think evolution caught on so quickly? And uh, Huxley replied this way. He said, um, I suppose the reason that we all jumped at the origin, the origin of the species, Doran's book, He says, I suppose the reason that we all jumped at the origin was because. Now, before I finish that sentence, how do you think the average college student would finish that sentence? 
What do you think he would say? The reason that we all jumped at the origin of the species. And, and how do you think the average college student would finish that sentence? They would say something like, um, well, um, we all jumped at the species because um, the evidence amassed by Darwin was so intellectually compelling that scientific integrity required that we accept it as fact. That's not what Huxley said. He said this. I suppose the reason that we all jumped at the origin, listen, was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. Because if I can get God out of the picture... I can sleep with anybody I want to. That's kind of appealing, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, he is by no means alone. Can I read you another little quip? Out? This is a book, Creation and Evolution. This is an article by J.P. Moreland, a name that might be familiar to some of you. He says this. In graduate school, I once had a professor say that evolution was a view he embraced religiously because it implied for him that he could do anything he wanted. Why? The professor went on to say that given that there is no God and that evolution is how we got here, there is no set purpose for life given to us, no objective right and wrong, no punishment after death, so one can live for himself in this life any way he wants. Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer made the same statement on national television. Dahmer said that the natural, that naturalistic evolution implied that we all came from slime and we were returned to slime. So why should he resist deeply felt tendencies to kill, given that we have no objective purpose or value and there is no punishment after death? They're not alone. Do you know the name Peter Singer? Peter Singer is considered the most influential philosopher in America today. He teaches at Princeton. He's the head of some kind of uh, department at Princeton. I forget which one. Um, uh, but uh, Peter Singer is a real proponent of abortion. And he wants, he, his position is that parents should be allowed to kill their children up to, and I forget exactly the date. I'm going to say 90 days, but I think it might be three years. But I think it's 90, we'll, we'll just use 90 days, that's the most concerned. That, that parents should be allowed to kill their children up to 90 days after they're born. But I think it's three years, but it, I could be wrong about that. No. But up to 90 days after the child is born, that you as a parent would have the right to, to, to take the life of your child. And he bases it on what he calls capacities. That you've got a chance to, to weigh the capacities of your child. And, of course, the unborn has no capacities, so you can kill it anytime you want to. But then you've got another 90 days after the child is born to measure the capacities. But what does that do for the handicapped who has who have at least limited capacities? Can we kill them, too? Why not? You know what, ladies and gentlemen? He's right. Based on his evolutionary assumptions, he's right.
don't know where I got this quote. I thought it was Mark Twain, but I don't think it is. Whoever said this, he said, I fear God. And next to God, I chiefly fear him who fears him not. That singer fella, he's a scary dude. And he's the most influential philosopher in America today. I fear God. But next to God, I chiefly fear him who fears him not. That guy's scary. But based on evolutionary assumptions, ladies and gentlemen, he's right. That's where your position takes you. You're the name Frederick Nietzsche? Hitler loved Nietzsche. He gave a copy of his book to every one of his soldiers. Nietzsche hated God. He hated Christianity in particular, hated the scriptures. Nietzsche was the first one who said that God is dead. And millions went to their grave believing Nietzsche. But what they might not have known is that Nietzsche spent the last 13 years of his life insane. And I based my eternity on him. Guys, I'm simply trying to point out that without God, there is no immorality. There is no morality. And immorality becomes inevitable. Morality and God can never be divorced. And the attempts to, to separate the two are underway by relativism, and one of the consequences of evolutionary science. Guys, the basis for all morality is the existence of God. Remove him, either by relativism or evolutionary science, and immorality is inevitable. That's just part of my analysis of what you see in this country. You have to figure out whether it's right or wrong. Oh, but Jimmy Young, you can't, you can't impose your morality on me. Ladies and gentlemen, I have never in my life tried to impose my morality on anyone. But you listen to me. A humanist cannot say that because a humanist is seeking through legislative means to make his views of abortion and homosexuality the law of this land. So the question is, Whose morality is going to be enforced? God's or man's? Because the state is determined to tell us what is and what isn't moral. Making intolerance the unpardonable sin. 
And if you want proof of that, you turn on any TV talk show that you like where tolerance of anything, no matter how perverse or how aberrant, is being presented. Except for, of course, you ignorant, close-minded, bigoted, dangerous Christians. Solutions. So you want solutions, do you? You want to you wanna know what to do? All right, I'll tell you. Get to the polls and elect Christians. We tried that. Back in the 70s. Remember the moral majority? Remember the contract with America and Newt Gingrich? When the political right co-opted the evangelical church? And ladies and gentlemen, we have been paying for that ever since. That has been a source of an embarrassment for the people of God ever since we tried it. And what we have as the result is the most God-opposed government ever in the history of this country. Anytime the church gets in bed with government thinking that that's our hope, then we deserve the mess we've got. Because we look to some kind of political party. Folks, the Republican Party is no more righteous than the Democratic Party. Although you may like their policies a little bit better. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is far too liberal for the Democrats. And he's far too conservative for the Republicans. He is equally opposed on both sides of the aisle. The church must preach the gospel in season, out of season. A gospel that says Jesus Christ is God in flesh. That he has visited planet earth and has become the savior of sinners. The hope of our country. And any other country for that matter is to be found in embracing the God-provided Savior. Other solutions I know not of. If I were you, I would invest heavily, not in gold, but in the broadcast of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, mend our every flaw. Our Father, forgive us that as a church we thought that our best hope lay in 
getting people in government positions, and we are in a mess. And I pray, O oh God, that you will um, arouse the, that you will quicken the, the Christian church to return to that which is the hope of the world, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Would you awaken us before it is too late, O oh God, and would you, would you, would you have mercy on us? Mercy that we don't deserve, we didn't earn. In fact, we've earned the opposite. Would you have mercy on a land that at one time you shed your grace upon? But, oh God, the kingdom does not need America. It does not need the United States. But we would ask for forgiveness. And that we as committed members of the household of faith, that you might convince us that we are wasting our lives in trivia while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Use Grace Evan as a small part of the solution. And might the church rise up Do that, O oh God, for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray.